September 8, 2013, lecture discussion number 122 on the book of Romans. And hopefully everyone on the internet and everyone here was aware and remembered. Uh, that's not to be assumed or taken for granted, by the way, being aware and remembering that we suspended class on the 25th of, uh, of August, so, uh, and also on the 1st of September. Uh, Terry, if I keep moving, did you good? So, uh, again, I hope everybody uh, knew that we suspended class on the 25th of August and the 1st of September. Um, and uh, this is our first day back after missing those two Sundays. Uh, and we missed those two Sundays, Lori and I did, uh, in an attempt to get control of the abyss that is my late mother's house, as most of you know. Whatever you call it, it all applies. It's an abyss. It's a black hole. It's a big ball of goo. Think the stickiest stuff you can get. And uh, it's just a horrible mess. And escape is not easily conceded from the ball of goo. It's it's a house of doom. It's a formidable adversary. And uh, it's been a war. And we're, I got it to where Sheetrocker will come in within the next uh, week or so if I can keep moving. And uh, this Monday and Tuesday, we're going to hopefully get it ready for him. So once that's done, now I'm almost free of it. But uh, I expect it to go down fighting. But you know all of that. I just need to mention it so people recognize that this lecture is separated by two weeks from the last one from the Internet. Uh, in this interim, some mail has trickled in. I got quite a few pieces of mail, and it's always cool when that happens. I picked one out here today to read to you. And I got a lot of questions um, from all over the place. And I supposed that I would start with those before we returned to Psalm 22. We are at, as you know, we are at Psalms 22.1, the fourth saying of the seven sayings of Christ. Now, it is also, and I haven't made this clear because I've been waiting for today, it's also Hebrews 13.5, and that's not really true either, and I'll explain that in a minute, but I always use Hebrews 13.5 instead of Deuteronomy 31.6 or Joshua 6, uh, 6.1. Or one six, sorry. Anyway, the point of it is, is that every time you read Psalm 22:1 in the Bible, especially the New Testament, the fourth saying of Christ from the cross, the "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" You must, you must also remember that it has a partner in Hebrews 13:5. And so we're trying to reconcile the two of those, and that uh, that's essentially where I left off on August the 18th. And that may not have been obvious, uh, by the way. But it is, in fact, what I was doing. I just wasn't mentioning it. Now I've come out in an overt way. That'll get to my letter here in a minute. Psalm 22.1, or if you want to find it where Christ actually says it, in the, I always go to Matthew 27.46. You have to deal with it in light of Hebrews 13.5. Again, this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, it, uh, again, the fourth saying of the seven sayings, the one, one of the two that he says in a loud voice that frankly is a creation-wide declaration, proclamation. All of creation heard what he said. As, he, as with, uh, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Those two sayings were creation-wide. So, Psalm 22.1 has to be reconciled to repeat it with Hebrews 13.5. And that has to be, by the way, now considered along with John uh, 10.18. So, I have a little box over here that causes me to deal with Psalm 22.1. Hebrews 13.5 and John 10.18 uh, are considered the two most emphatic statements that Christ said in the New Testament. The ones he said the most powerfully to the people around him. Not from the cross, but in this case, uh, you can consider um, Psalm 22 in the mix. Don't ever separate them, as I said. But Hebrews 13.5, John 10.18, two things that Christ said so emphatically that you, we really need to, to recognize why he, he would 
put so much power into them. If you remember John 10:18, we did it a few months ago. I repeat it all the time. That's where Jesus Christ says, and I'll try to do it in a reasonably emphatic way, but I cannot even come close to what God does. He says this, No one takes my life from me. No one. You cannot kill me, is what he's saying. Romans didn't kill him. The Jews didn't kill him. There's no such thing as a Christ killer. He makes it very, very clear. No one takes it from me. I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. That's what he says very, very emphatically. And the complement to that emphatic statement is Hebrews 13.5. Hebrews 13.5 has to be reconciled with the loud declaration of Psalm 22.1. See how that fits together? I hope you do. If you don't, it's okay. We have next week. John 10.18. No one takes it from me. I lay it down. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up. I can do whatever I want with my life. We have none of that. He's the only one that can do that. He's the only one that has done it. He's the only one that could do it. And that, of course, is the ability to move omnipotence. Do you know what I mean by that? I say it a lot. Christ has the ability to move omnipotence. What is that? How much power does it take? Well, I'll ask it this way. How much power does it take to pull him off the cross? It takes omnipotence. Because he's omnipotent. Is it possible to pull him down from the cross? It's impossible. You're talking about the ability to move him. How heavy is he if he wants to be heavy? He's infinite. So anytime somebody says, well, they force Christ to do this, that is, that is illogical, indefensible, and foolishness. You cannot force omnipotence. And that's the issue of Hebrews 5.7 for those of you on the internet that like to go careening off now. You can leave now and go there because you can always hit pause. It's a great advantage for the internet people. We call hitting pause here falling asleep. They, they can actually go get something to eat. Now, <laughs> Hebrews 13.5, and for that matter, let me start adding the rest of them here. I'll just make sure I don't miss any and say them wrong. Deuteronomy 31.6, Joshua 1.6, uh, Genesis 28.15, First uh, Chronicles 28.20. All of those, and all of, and Hebrews 13.5. Those are essentially all the same. And Hebrews 13.5 has in the original Greek five negatives to it. And we don't really have a modern English equivalent. And I almost promise you that the Bible translation that you're using does not give you the essence of Hebrews 13.5. You just have to know it's there. You have to know it gets you back into Deuteronomy 31.6, Joshua 1.6. Primarily, it'll get you somewhat into Genesis 28.15, 1 Chronicles 28.20. But these two right here are the ones that it's actually from. Deuteronomy 31.6, Joshua 1.6 are the foundation of Hebrews 13.5. So when you've got that, you'll be in good shape. But it has in the Greek original five negatives. In the modern English would be something like this. I'm not going to do it justice. This is not how it really is. You have to go study the Greek and understand how it's put put together. But at least you'll know somewhat. And that's our plan for today. I will never, no, never leave you. The I is capitalized. Christ is the I. He's the speaker here in Hebrews 13.5. Nor 
ever forsake you. Do you now understand why it takes you back to Hebrews 22? I'm sorry, uh, Psalm 22.1. Here's what he says, as emphatically as he can. I will never, no, never leave you, nor ever forsake you. So always place John 10.18, that's the other emphatic statement in the New Testament, with Hebrews 13.5, and Hebrews 13.5 with Psalm 22.1. Hopefully, as I said, hopefully you can see why. What's the purpose? What is the statement of Psalm 22.1? Yeah, see, I have forsake in common, don't I? Absolutely do. You have to reconcile, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, with... I will never, no, never leave you, nor ever forsake you. Because if you have the common view, and I hope you don't, you're now in a contradiction. The question quickly becomes, who says this? What, what person says this? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who asks that question? Does God ask that question about himself? In other words, does God ask God that? That is the common view. The common view is that God has asked God this question. Is it logical for God to ask God this? Would he ever ask himself this? And clearly, whoever asks this has never read Hebrews 13.5 or Deuteronomy 31.6. And that's why I asked all these questions on August the 18th, or I hope I did. Sometimes I'm not sure. I don't listen to myself. The only time I listen to myself is when Lori listens to me. She listens to me on Sunday morning while I'm upstairs, uh, usually finishing this lecture, certainly the conclusion of it. I always leave the conclusion till Sunday morning, so it's still fresh in my mind. And I can hear this ranting fool downstairs blaring over computer. I just go, he's annoying. And I'm right about that. But that's the only time I hear myself is is at that time. And it's interesting. And sometimes I go, oh, wow, that that, that ranting idiot got that right. That's amazing. I hope he doesn't, I hope he stops there. But I think I asked these questions. I'm not really sure. If I didn't, I'm doing it now. What is the definition of forsake? What does it mean? Who are the forsaken? Why are they the forsaken? What is the process of forsakenness? How do I become forsaken? What is the anatomy or the steps to being forsaken? Where are the forsaken? Physically, where are they located? Exactly, specifically, what causes someone to say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What causes that? And it's a question. What causes someone to ask this question? What is implied in Psalm 22.1, that question? Is it a good question or a bad question? Is it implying that God has done something wrong, that he has unjustly? Why have you forsaken me? Put that emphasis on. Do I, is, is the person asking it implying that he does not deserve to be forsaken, that God has done something unjust? Hmm. That's what I'm asking you. You have to decide. And what is the answer to the Psalm 22.1 question? I gave it to you. What's the answer? If you ask that God, if you ask God that question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What will he answer back to you? Hebrews 13.5, I will never, no, never leave you, nor ever forsaken you. Forsake you. That's the answer. So again, it's a question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus Christ is omniscient God himself in the flesh, the Word made flesh. He is the I Am. He is the Ancient of Days. He is the Lord God Almighty. He is the Creator. He's called the Mighty Father. In Isaiah, he's on the cross, and he asks this question, 
My God, my God, why have actually quotes this question, which is better. He quotes this question from Psalm 22, 1. Does God in the flesh know the answer to the Psalm 22, 1 question? Duh. Omniscient God. Is it something he would ever ask about himself? I'm going to tell you no. He would never ask it about himself. Then why does he quote it from the cross? You have to know why. The common view that Jesus Christ felt sorry for himself and he can't understand why the triune God abandoned the triune God. He can't understand that. He's lonely. He's sad. His own plan of salvation, now he's trying to get out from underneath it. Even though he designed it himself from the beginning of time. That view, uh, and listen, I don't want to mock it. Okay, I do want to mock it. I do. It can't be defended. And listen, I've been in arguments. Bill, Bill the cow goes on the internet all the time and, 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 and gets in these websites, and I'm just really impressed with how he does that. I, I don't have the, the energy anymore to fight with people. Um, I'm old now and tired, and I'm trying to do sheetrock and concrete. But I have fought over this, and I know when it first came to me, and I had the common view, I realized immediately that I was destroyed before I even got out of the gate. And after a lifetime of researching it, this that view that Jesus Christ felt abandoned and that, uh, think about that, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God feels abandoned. Just right there you should know you're in real deep water. That position is so easily destroyed, it is not even worth bringing it to the table or going into the Internet with it. Almost any amateur will wipe you out. So we're going to be dealing with all of that some more in a moment. That's the introduction to today. Uh, we'll get to it. But I wanted to take care of some of these letters, I, 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 some of these questions today as well, because they're just they follow the same vein as they always do. I got a letter from Jeffrey, and he didn't tell me where he was, which is very smart, because they have learned that we'll hunt them down now. No, we won't. Okay, we no, we won't. But he writes this. Jeffrey's from somewhere, I'll call him. Uh, just, as soon as I saw the first five words, it made me laugh. And so I wanted to share the joke, the humor. Dear Cliffside, I used to get angry at Pastor Steve's sermons. <laughs> because as I told my wife, he knows so much and all he does is ask questions. Brilliant analysis. Uh, I'm not so sure about the nose so much, but all he does is ask questions. Then I realized from one of his sermons that this is how our Lord taught. It is. Jesus Christ asks you questions every time he talks to us. Continuing. So I actually did what Pastor Steve wanted me to do. Search the scriptures. Now I can't wait for his questions. I love the questions because I am learning so much. It is a lot better than being told answers. He's right. Then he says uh, that uh, he says that he well, expected donations soon. I never fib about sending money. Uh, he's realized that we are a very small group here, and, and he's very kind. And I we thank you very much, Jeffrey, from somewhere. But I wanted to read that to you because that's what we're doing here today. If you ask the right questions, you will have an opportunity to succeed. Uh, with You will find the right answers. And asking the questions, knowing that the questions are so important, uh, leads you correctly almost every time. It is more valuable to you that I tell you what the questions are than I tell you what the answers are. You will find the answers if you have the questions. If you don't even know the questions exist, that's when you're in the most trouble. And this is a subject, 22.1, which is precisely that subject. Now, Annabelle, she wanted to know this. It's a fantastic question. 
I just wanted to bring Anna into it simply because uh, I wanted the internet people to know that we get we have people here that can compete. It's it's true, by the way. You're you're all amazing. It stuns me. Here's what Annabelle wanted to know. Did she wanted to know? Let me. How do I phrase this? She wanted to know if the Virgin Mary was exempt from the curse. What I mean by that, or what she meant by that, is did the Virgin Mary suffer pain in childbirth? Now, why would she care about childbirth now? Okay. She knows she's got a beating coming for her in just a few weeks. Uh, she asked me today, as a, as a side note, you're going to be there, right? No, I'm not. Are you kidding me? I'm not going to be there. That's, da- that's dangerous. I'm not even going to be in the same building. I'm going to wait till the police clear the building out. <laughs> Andrew, poor Andrew, is going to be in there, and I don't think he'll survive. I really don't. I, and you laugh, but you are laughing because you know there's a possibility yeah, that he won't. <laughs> but anyway, it'll be an experience Andrew will never forget for a multitude of reasons. Did the Virgin Mary suffer pain in childbirth? That is a fantastic. Fantastic question. You have to deal with that. And many have asked about Syria because of the current events. As you know, uh, Syria is an extension of Iran. And uh, Iran is, uh, you know, Iran uh, came from the word Aryan. That's why they were, um, uh, that's why they are, they were allied with Hitler in World War II. Aryan. Is, is, is our, we've anglicized it into Iran. And Israel knows that Iran is its most dangerous enemy. Israel understands the history better than we ever were. They understand what uh, Iran, Aryan, intends to do. And so you see almost immediately that Russia and Iran, two countries that have devoted themselves to the extermination of the Jewish nation, they're collaborating in Syria right now. And that is Ezekiel 38, as you know. That's an extraordinary thing. A war with Syria uh, has the potential to bring with it uh, the two countries identified in Ezekiel 38 as the leaders of the Confederacy that attacks Israel. And they attack Israel near the end of the age of the Gentiles. So again, uh, the question becomes, or the Syria questions that I've gotten are all the same thing. Are we who are now alive, that would be all of us in this room, are we who are now alive uh, are going to move from the column of those who have not seen but believed to the column that is seen? See, uh, that's John twenty twenty nine. Christ says, Thomas, you have believed, but you have seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and believed. Are we going to move from the not seen believed to the seen believed? What I mean by that, are we going to see, and that's 2 Kings 6.17, for those of you who follow along, are our eyes going to be opened up to the supernatural event that is Ezekiel 38? If it is, that is an extraordinary thing. Do we see God supernaturally intervene and protect Syria, I'm sorry, protect Israel from the Syrian, um, uh, Iran, Russian invasion? It's fascinating to me to watch the, uh, our country, our current administration has um, clearly tried to install as many Islamic I don't know how leaderships, I guess, or Islamic controls, Islamic political systems as it can. Tried to do it in in Egypt, and Egypt has rejected it. Tried to do it in Libya. I don't know if Libya will uh, be able to survive it. And now they're trying to do it. They're on the sides of the most brutal uh, killers of Israel that you could ever find. That's who we're choosing to be with. It's, It's astonishing if you think that this country is going to stand up for Israel, it's not at all astonishing if you read Ezekiel 38, right? Israel will be absolutely alone that at the age, at the end of the age of the Gentile. The last question, I, I get this a lot, uh, why does God wait or how long is long suffering? 
Why doesn't God end this catastrophic mess that is our sinful world? And that question returns us to John 15, 13. Uh, eventually, greater love has no one than to lay down one's life for his friends. And now, obviously, hidden in that verse is this extraordinary uh, picture of Jesus Christ, uh, him laying his own life by himself. Um, again, John 10, 18. And, and you have to decide what no greater means. I'm, I'm of the view that no greater means no greater. Isn't that profound? So why is this such a great... He tells you how much power does it take to resurrect you? How much power does it take to heal you? Something is beeping. Is it food? Well, that's good. Is it time for the lecture to be over? No. We could run right to the food. Where was I? Christ says that resurrecting you, healing you, that takes power, no question. But it takes more power to forgive your sin. And so no greater means no greater. And we have to have the exact meaning of no greater and understand this the sin, uh, how the sin is removed, where it's transferred to, uh, if you will, who it's transferred to, how is it contained, that's, that's the power of forgiving sins. So that's all in there. But it's also applicational. All Scripture is applicational to us individually. So it also answers, when you get a no greater feeling and you understand what that is, uh, then you go on to, to answer the why does God wait so long question. Okay, so there's lots of stuff to deal with today. And let me proceed like I usually do, my usual method. And that is, uh, uh, instead of answering any of that, I give answers. Uh, instead of giving the answers, I just uh, uh, ask you more questions. Or the answers that I do give you uh, result in more questions, which is uh, really exciting, I know. Let me just quickly go over them. The solution to Psalm 22.1 is to know the options, to know the choices. So the first thing you say is, what are my choices? It doesn't, well, it's not. It's not logical that God is asking this question about himself or that God is the me in the question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 99% of your Bibles, they'll capitalize the me. I'm going to tell you that you're going to have a hard time defending that. You're going to have a little me. And by the way, who is the one that actually said that? Who wrote it? Holy Spirit, I know. But who did he use to write it? David. Did David think that he was talking about the Messiah? Or did David think he was talking about himself? Is it a little me or a big me? Or is it both? That would be the Hebrew principle of double reference. Some would say double fulfillment. That will make Arnold Fruchtenbaum very angry. Trust me. Me and Arnold, uh, uh, we agree on so many things. And I would be really, really... Uh, cautious about disagreeing with him on how the Hebrew is written. At least I wouldn't let him hear it. So I don't think he listens. So I feel like i got a free run. But the solution to Psalm 22.1 is to know your options, the choices. David, is, he, is, is the context himself? Is he the one that says it? Does Israel say it? And are they talking about themselves when they say it? Does David and Israel both say it? Double fulfillment. Okay? Versus double reference. Is God saying this? Is he saying it about himself? He's quoting it. I quote lots of people. When I quote them, am I talking about me? Does the quote indicate that the reference is to the, himself? So I have David, Israel, or God as choices. I have combinations of David, Israel, and God. Uh, again, the double reference, the Hebrew principle of double reference. And we're going to go over that next week. I'm going to break all of Psalms 22 down, and you will figure out which, which paragraph, which sentence is about who all the way through it. Do some of that today. And the solution to, to, to did Mary suffer the curse of pain in childbirth? Was she trying to kill Joseph? Anna will have her hands around Andrew's neck. if he's, She'll be trying to beat his head against the wall. That will happen. I'm warning him now. It will. 
Did Mary feel pain in childbirth? Now, what are your options? The solution to that is to know who is the child here. Who is he? God himself. God is the child. You know that. Now, your more choices come up. Who prevails then? Does the sin of Mary or the, the, Mary's under the curse. Does the sin or the curse of Mary prevail against God? Eh? What's the issue here? What's the, the choices? The solution to the age of the Gentiles. Which, by the way, I'm just, I'm not going from Adam. I'm just going from Nebuchadnezzar. Why I do that is because that's when the age of the Gentiles begins. the question that the uh, apostles ask is, when does it, 24-3, when does this age of the Gentiles finally over? They want to know. Tell us, when is it finally over? He tells them. It's gone on since 586 B.C., and now we're at 2013. It's still going on. How long does it last? That's what they want to know. How long is long-suffering? How long is long? When do we end this? When is the end of the age of the Gentiles? Why is God taking so long to end sin? That is 2 Peter 3, 9. When does his promise to come finally occur? 2 Peter 3, 4. You see, that's a question, by the way, ultimately, that gets you into why does God, or why did God, create beings with the free will capacity to reject and hate him? Why did he do that? And then the question I get all the time is, why is there evil? That's the wrong question. Never ask, why is there evil? That's easy. That's the same thing as saying, why is there me? Why is there you? Let me help you out. The person sitting next to you in the church is sinful. The person cheating, yes, it's true. The person preaching the sermon is sinful. There's evil everywhere, wickedness everywhere. That, that is not the question. Why is there wickedness or evil? The question is, is why is there any good ever? Where does the good come from? That's the question. So, it isn't, why did God create beings with the capacity to reject and hate him? The question really becomes is, why did he save any of them? Why do why are any saved? Not why are so many lost. Why are any saved? Even one. And and physical death, uh, to throw this out here while I've got time, is the closing door, if you will. The decision to believe must be made within the term of our accountable lifetime. Notice how I said that? I added the accountability issue right there. But why is the demarcation line physical death? Uh, Luke 16, 19 through 31, that's uh, uh, the rich Pharisee and the beggar Lazarus. Uh, that is not a parable. That is a real life occurrence that Christ illustrates. It just happened, by the way, just probably prior to him saying it or was about to happen in any event since he's the creator of time and he could do any of the two. Uh, and Hebrews 9.7, right? I'm sorry, 9.27. It is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. Okay? That brings a, a truckload of questions all by itself. Don't have time to do it. When we ask God to end sin, stop the chaos, whatever you wish, we are asking for what? We are asking for judgment to come. So if the end of the Gentile age comes then what's coming with it? Judgment. So when the Jews are asking Christ, his apostles are asking him, when is the end of the age of the Gentiles? They're really asking him, when are you going to kill these Gentiles? And get them out of here. They didn't really understand the whole Gentile Israel thing until Paul. It's never for me, the phone. Is it Ken? If it's Ken, bring it up here. No, no, I'm kidding, Cindy. Run for your life. Okay. If the end of the Gentile age has come, then judgment has come. 
And though the tribulation is this time of great repentance and salvation, you should know that. The, uh, the three things to the tribulation, I can't say it enough. It's the, he says these are the three purposes for the tribulation. The ending of the wicked ones. Uh, turning the stubborn people, the stiff-necked people, Israel, to himself, Christ. So they have a recognition that Christ is, is YHVH, he's the I Am. He's the Messiah, and he's God Creator. He's in the line of David. He's the King of Israel, but he's also Creator God. To get them to understand that, and then save as many as who will come during the tribulation worldwide. So though the tribulation is a time of great repentance and salvation, it's also a time when the overwhelming majority do what? Die in their sins. There are going to be tremendous physical death during the tribulation. Which means the closing of billions of doors. The time for repentance, for believing. Uh, salvation is going to end with each of those physical deaths. So again, the question, why is the physical death the closing door, right? Some people don't think it is. The Bible says it is. Why? Again, for the overwhelming majority, judgment under condemnation comes with that physical death. So if we are seeing Iran and Russia using Syria to initiate the prophecy of Ezekiel 38, unbeknownst to them, by the way, soon, very soon, is the end of the age of the Gentiles, which is a very solemn, sad day as it is the time of death for every unbeliever. The law, an unbeliever that survives the tribulation has to go through the 75-day interval. What happens there? He does not enter into the millennium. That's the sheep and the goats. So it's a very solemn, sad day. The death of every unbeliever is, is, is the, the, what awaits them is condemnation. The great white throne. So you see, the longer this dumpster fire of a world that we have right now, this condition of evil and wickedness that we're going through goes on, the more time is given for millions to reach for the extended hand of God. Giving salvation, as he gives it, has to give it. There's no other way to get salvation other than him giving it to you. None of us can afford it. Thus, if we should die, if I, if today is my last day physically, the union of my soul and my spirit and my mind and my body, if today is that la is my last day, then I'm going to die knowing something. I'm going to die knowing that salvation is going to be offered tomorrow. Those who come after all of us can still come. See, you've got to break it down into years and months and days and hours and minutes and seconds, because that's going to happen to somebody. And I've imagined it, as you know, because I'm what? Weird. That's right. So I've thought about it in my own little odd way. I've got to thinking about the final hours of the tribulation. See, I got doing this because it says in Isaiah, in the millennium, that if you reject Christ during the millennium, so that tells you there's still sin in the millennium, there he is on the throne, there he is king, there he is uh, ruling the entire world just as perfectly as it can be done, and there will be those in the millennium who will hate him, reject him, and they will live to the year 100, and then they are taken to condemnation. So I always thought, what about the guys that are 99, 364s, right? Does that make sense? 99 years, 364 days old. What are they thinking? I want to know. That's how I got into this discussion. So, same thing here. I've imagined the final hours of the tribulation. The Antichrist is moving towards Israel. The Kurds have swept down and burned Babylon. Southern Egypt has mounted and they've moved against him. The Jews are, are in Basra. And everybody knows now it's just a few minutes and Christ is coming. Now, the Antichrist knows it. Satan knows it. The people in the Antichrist army, they think they're going to win. 
They are what we call the dumbest people of all time. They are not going to win. Everyone knows it but them. It's the old, if you're at the table and you can't find the sucker, it's you. And that's them. They're the suckers of this game. And that's important to realize that's part of his motive. The joy that he has to betray people, to fool them into thinking that he's actually going to deliver or save them, and they instead are destroyed instantly, without effort. That gives Satan and the Antichrist great joy. And, and you see that, by the way, in the Islamic religion. It's a small little picture. The greatest thing, one of the greatest things you can do in that faith is to betray someone who thinks you have converted and cut their throat when they think you're their, when you think that that person is their best friend. There's a, a, a that's going to get me some nasty letters, but there's some tremendous symmetry there. Okay. So I want to know, final hours of the tribulation, the urgency of the Antichrist to kill as many as he can is at its height and what will be happening. And I submit that the saved will rush from hiding. How empowered are you going to feel when you go, wait a second, now we're at six years, 364 days. What's my job? You know for certain the time. By the way, Satan also knows for certain the time. So the Antichrist is in a hurry to kill as many of who as he can. The unsaved. Killing as many of the unsaved as he can. Fast as he can kill them. Gotta get them. It's a race. So I imagine that there's a prison somewhere and there's a whole bunch of people in it. And they're stepping it up. And I think our physical death is going to be similar. Listen, I'm not saying we're going through the tribulation. I have a rapture position, an imminent rapture position. Um, uh, but uh, I'm just trying to put it all together, kind of a odd allegory here. I think that at the end of the tribulation, people are going to sacrifice themselves in order to gum up the works. Thank you. Gum up the works so that... Uh, they can run the clock out on the Antichrist, kind of like holding the ball in a basketball game. I really do expect that. If we, that's us here, we're not going into tribulation, but we might see Ezekiel 38. If we see Ezekiel 38, what's going to happen to you? I think our, our physical death is going to become so insignificant that it'll stun you. I think it's going to be much like what happened to the apostles. Their physical death had no power over them at all. I think uh, that's what will happen if we see Ezekiel 38. We will be crazy. What, what we value will change. Everything will change instantly for you. During the Nazi death camps, as you know, saved men sacrificed themselves for unsaved men. It was, happened all over every, those death, death camps. Catholic priests, uh, more than any of them, that were put in there for hiding Jews. Whenever there was a, whenever someone was selected to be killed, the priest would offer to take his place and almost every time. He, he didn't know how much time he was given to condemn the man. They knew he'd given him some time. I'll give you an hour. The saved men were giving a great gift. They were giving time. Time to repent, confess, believe for whomsoever would. Okay? And I hope that at least that begins you to consider why God waits. Why there is so much suffering. Why this evil seems to prosper. I want you to begin your process of questioning who benefits from the time that's going on. It is a chaotic, evil, wicked place. But who's benefiting from it? Is God benefiting? Who benefits from time? Now, quickly, back to Psalm 22.1. The fourth saying of Christ on the cross. Jesus Christ quotes Psalm 22.1. He chooses Psalm 22.1. He does, of all the scriptures in the Old Testament, he could quote, this is the one he quotes. Now, he does not quote 
Deuteronomy 31.6, Joshua 1.6. Does not. He quotes 22.1 of Psalm. And that's something that King David cries out. We're going to read it really fast. Therithides back there holding up fingers, so i got to go fast now. I'm going to read it. You read along, or listen. David wrote this. And David is some, this is something that David cried himself. He's quoting himself. So, here we have a situation of David quoting himself and Christ quoting David. That makes sense. Here's what David, uh, David says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken David? Why are you so far from helping David? Why are the, why are the words of David? Why are, I'm sorry, I didn't say that well. My God, my God, why have you forsaken David? Why are you so far from hate, hate uh, helping David and so far away from the words of David, who is groaning his words? This is a paraphrase. It's not in your translation. Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, David. And in the night session season, I am not silent. So now I'll read it as it's uh, correctly worded. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you don't hear. And in the night season, and am never silent at night. So David is wailing that God has forsaken him, lamenting that God is not helping him, that God does not hear him. And David cries this in the daytime, and he cries it in the nighttime. That's what he's doing. And by the way, pretty much exactly like who else does this? Raise your hands. Okay, this is what we do, right? Pretty much exactly like we also cry. God, God, you've abandoned me. You won't listen to me. You won't help me. I cry, I cry, I cry, I cry, I cry all night. And you don't do anything. And if you don't admit you think that or say that, then that's okay. But we won't believe you. And what does God say when you say that? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you not helping me? Why are you not listening to me groan? I cry all day, I cry all night, and you're not hearing me. What's his answer? I will never, no, never leave you, nor ever forsake you. That's his answer to those questions that you just asked him, right? Or that David asked him. So I want you to notice now really quickly... David saying here in Psalm 22.4. Let me make sure I've got that right. No, let me back up. The answer to this is, I will never, no, never leave you, nor ever forsake you. Got to know that. That's Hebrews 13.5, Deuteronomy 31.6, John 1.6. It's important, it's critical to understand that Psalm 22.1 is three questions. Okay? Why have you forsaken me? Why are you not helping me? And why aren't you listening to me? Responding to me? Three questions. Christ only quotes the first one. Why have you abandoned me, left me alone? Is it possible for the omnipresent God to leave you alone? What happens if God were to leave you alone? He has to think about you constantly to keep your molecular structure together. Physically. That's another physics lesson that nobody wants. But those are three questions. What are those questions? If I were to characterize them, what are they? Are they polite? Are they uh, respectful? I'm going to say they're accusing God of three things. God, you are, you've left me alone. And I don't deserve it. You're not helping me. I deserve help. And you are listening to me. And you should be listening to me. I think they're accusatory. Now notice Psalm 22:24. This is what David, he says that, and then none of the rest of it, the entire thing that he writes is anywhere close to reflecting what he just wrote. And by the way, read Psalm 23. That's the conclusion of Psalm 22. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me, you know the Psalm 23. 
That is what David writes. He writes these three questions and then he goes, goes about refuting them. Look at 22.4. He says this about God. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. He absolutely said the opposite of what he said in the beginning. At verse 24. He's saying God is not despising David. God is not hiding from David. And God heard every cry from David. So, And Psalm 23, again, is the conclusion to Psalm 22. So, to repeat once more, of all the verses in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ, God himself, chooses to quote these, the first of these three questions of David. From the cross, in a loud voice, heard throughout the creation. That's what he picks to do. Now begin your consideration of that by asking a few basic simple questions. Does Jesus Christ know where the triune Godhead is? At all times. Yes, he does. Can God hide from God? Because that's what that first is. My God, my God, why are you hiding from me? If you think that's God, asking God that question, then you're saying that God can hide from God. Is that possible? Does the omnipotent God, Jesus Christ, it's all powerful, he's got all the power. Does omnipotent God, Jesus Christ, need any help? Because what's David saying? Help me, right? Help me. Does Jesus Christ, omnipotent God, need any help? No. If Jesus Christ wants to be heard, is there any, is it possible to not hear him? No. And once you've gotten through that, then you know that Christ never asked those three questions about himself or to God. So what's left? What's your options? David? Israel? Next week, we'll go through all of Psalm 22.